Coming up on Talk Gnosis, priest, mystic, author, and proponent of Christian contemplation, Reverend Cynthia Borgio joins us to discuss the wisdom tradition. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to Talk Gnosis. I'm Father Tony Sylvia, and joining me as my co-host for this evening is Jonathan Stewart. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Father Tony. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, good. So I'm excited to get started today. Um, I've been uh, I've been following our guest's work for a while now, and and uh, I'm very excited to talk to her about uh, Christian contemplation. So let me get right to it. Uh, Reverend Cynthia Borgio is an Episcopal priest, a writer, a mystic, um, retreat leader, and uh, she just uh, does so much for the Christian contemplation community. And uh, tonight we're going to talk to her about uh, the wisdom tradition in general. So uh, welcome, Reverend Borgio. Nice to have you on the show. Oh, it's great to be on the show. And thanks for doing this kind of work and getting the word out. <laughs> well, it's our pleasure. You know, we uh, we often talk on this show about the importance of having a spiritual practice. And, and most often, I recommend centering prayer and, and things along those lines. So it's wonderful to finally talk to uh, somebody who's so internationally recognized in the field. <laughs> Great. The horse's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about the wisdom tradition and uh, what does that uh, specifically have to do with Jesus and Christianity? Well, I usually when I teach my wisdom students, I like to introduce it in, the, in just a one-liner that wisdom is not knowing more. It's knowing deeper. It's knowing with more of you. And in our own uh, tradition, we we tend to have uh, knowledge associated with cognitive knowledge and information only, uh, access by rationality. I even in our schoolwork today, in our, our classes, we favor cognitive modes of discourse over all sorts of other ways of knowing, kinesthetic, emotional, uh, all sorts of forms of embodied knowing, uh, not to mention mystical vision, contemplative knowing. And wisdom simply is the original integral knowing, as Ken Wilber would call it nowadays. It says that to know, you have to know with all systems running so that they reinforce and, and deepen and turn things from kind of two-dimensional reductions of knowledge to uh, real knowledge. So what do you, how would you define real knowledge? <laughs> well, real knowledge, it'd be a real circular definition. <laughs> real, real knowledge is knowledge that really goes deeper than just favoring one system of tracking and, and following it. And it's very interesting that in, in the classic sense and this great uh, debate that's grown up nowadays about gnosis and Gnosticism, the word gnosis originally meant knowledge and it implied this uh, three-dimensional deep global knowing which included emotive and kinesthetic and imaginal visionary components and when the first people began to rail against it gnosis was a perfectly good good term in, in, in the new testament writers saint paul uses it all the time and when people first began to rail and introduce the word that would eventually wind up Gnosticism, they first started talking about so-called Gnosis. Mm. I mean, people have so-called Gnosis. And it was still respected that Gnosis means this full-spectrum integral knowing. And But that more and more dropped out of the tradition as, uh, as the practices 
that supported a different kind of knowing uh, dried up and knowledge began to become associated exclusively with just kind of cognitive, rational, uh, and finally scholastic theological knowing. So, you know, back to the original second half of the question you asked, uh, what does this have to do with, with, with Jesus? Is that I think the only way that we can actually get a useful take on who he is, is to come in through the door of seeing him as a wisdom teacher. It means that he is fundamentally concerned with the transformation of consciousness, the complete transformation of consciousness, which means revisioning not only what you see, but the very structures of perception uh, through which you see it. And that he taught a practice, a, a master practice that supported that, and simply assumed that when this revisioning, this, this, this different way of seeing the world would really become stabilized in a person, then all these things that have become the requirements and the expectations of the, of the Christian path would follow naturally like compassion and loving your neighbor and unguardedness and uh, humility, uh, all of those things would follow because you would see the world as it really was, not through your egoic distortions of it. So what we've actually done over about 2,000 years of consistent work in that direction in the church is to, is to sort of reduce the whole wisdom and transformational uh, component of Jesus's teaching and substitute for that a set of beliefs in, uh, you know, depending on what branch of Christianity you come in from, the authority of the church, the authority of the Bible, or a set of very, very uh, limited and rigid beliefs about who Jesus was. We substitute that for the invitation that he he extended to each person who came before him uh, to, to open uh, their heart and their mind to see, uh, to listen if you have ears. And, uh, and we've completely forgotten that he taught at least the rudiments of a method to facilitate this. So my own work has simply been to try to recover that uh, access route uh, to Mount Jesus. Mm. Do you think that that's something that happens with religious traditions over time that, uh, you know, as, as you get further and further away from that initial kind of revelatory experience for whatever tradition it is, that it becomes more calcified and more um, bound up in the kind of administrative things that need to happen? Well, I think that's true at one level of it, that, that when any new uh, emergence happens, when there's a you know, a new crater of, of knowing, of, of wisdom and mysticism hits the earth, you know, certainly at the institutional level, it's going to cool off the farther you get away from uh, the epicenter. But at another level of practice, the epicenter is always there and is always intimately present. And in all the great spiritual traditions, not just Christianity, but certainly in the Hindu and Buddhist traditions uh, and the Islamic, the Sufi traditions, the great ones don't go away. And, uh, and there's something in our human beingness, in, our, in the depths of our consciousness, even as we're creatures on the planet, they can already access and live perfectly intimately in that, that level of being that's beyond time.
So the whole point of spiritual practice is to maintain our uh, our fluidity, our, our, our fluency at that level, so that we don't experience time receding and distance increasing from the original point of founding, but that we can uh, tune in, as it were, and continue to walk the walk in a sphere that lies beyond time. And I think in every tradition, there have always been practitioners that have accessed and reaccessed uh, the tradition at that level. That's basically what's carried in the great mystical traditions in all the great religious lineages. Mm, yeah, that's lovely. <laughs> I like to, uh, I, I like to see you know, that. Yeah. You know, whether whether it's Meister Eckhart or Teilhard de Chardin uh, mm -hmm. coming back to a direct encounter with Jesus, uh, or whether it's uh, Ramana Maharshi making contact with the the timeless sources of his own Hindu tradition, it happens over and over and over again so that the, a tradition is renewed from above. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I want to skip back a little bit uh, to um, uh, maybe, maybe lead, uh, ask a leading question a little bit. So uh, where do you think that the original wisdom traditions uh, of Christianity kind of manifested? Do, do you see things in uh, specifically in the Gospels that uh, point towards what you're talking about? And, and can you give us a few examples? And are there other sources besides the canonical Gospels that you might find some of this stuff? Well, you know, I think that essentially that the, the wisdom tradition and whatever tradition and faith, uh, it, it originates in a higher level of consciousness. And the closer you move to... Uh, to that symbol in any of the great traditions, it's like converging on the same mountain peak. So its 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 real roots are outside of time, and I think that when you have the eyes to look at the gospel tradition and to measure Jesus from the eyes of practice, as you begin to open your own uh, inner seeing through contemplative practice, uh, you see it all over the Gospels, even the canonical Gospels, You because it emanates right from the energy of Jesus, which is still very, very plainly there in the Gospels. But some of the places where we see it most clearly uh, are particularly in, in sources such as the Gospel of Thomas. And it, it, got tr it got categorized later as one of these Gnostic Gospels, and nobody knows exactly what they mean by that tradition, but generally the stereotype that, that comes to people's minds is they tend to think that there was an opposite school of, of Christianity that had different kind of texts and taught secret doctrines and wasn't really Christian. But the the if you go back to what I said about Gnostic, the, the word will tend to suggest that these are these are teachings that kept a closer uh, direct connection with that timeless living uh, uh, intimacy with the, with the teaching at the wellspring. And perhaps the, the, the most powerful of the texts we have is what's known as the Gospel of Thomas, uh, which, which was rediscovered in what's called the Nag Hammadi Codex in uh, 1945 in the deserts of Egypt with about, you know, about 50 other texts which were ancient Christian scriptures that once had some standing in the Christian community, but at some point got, uh, uh, got labeled as too heretical or too dangerous and, uh, and dropped from the canon. Uh, 
there there actually wasn't really a canon to begin with, but they just were not considered further in in the shape of what would become the New Testament. So the Gospel of Thomas is one of them, uh, and there are many very reputable scholars nowadays who can actually trace the the core and earliest levels of these teachings right back to a time that was contemporaneous with Jesus's uh, human life. They say that the early April Deaconic is one of the eminent uh, Gospel of Thomas scholars and take and traces the early core of these teachings back to 30 to 60 AD. But they, the, the collection itself, however it actually first came together, has a particular focus toward these wisdom transformational teachings of, of Jesus. It's like a, uh, an early version of, you know, the later Stephen Mitchell, the Enlightened Mind book. It's, it's sort of the enlightened sayings of Jesus. And it's a set of 114 sayings, many of which are reduplicated in the canonical gospels, but which all together have the effect of really calling attention to the fact that Jesus was inescapably a teacher who was uh, primarily concerned with the transformation of consciousness. And once you see it in the Gospel of Thomas, you can go back then and it's impossible not to see it in all the other canonical Gospels. So I would say it doesn't depend on finding what you might call uh, offbeat or untraditional sources. It just depends on having the eye of your heart opened and then seeing it everywhere. Mm. Uh, Reverend Borcho, I, I guess just to, uh, to, to stay on these, uh, these Gnostic Gospels for a sec, uh, there's this uh, idea or, or stereotype that these, um, these ancient Gnostics, these early Christians, uh, the people who wrote these texts were, uh, were fierce dualists. But in your work, you talk a lot about the uh, the non-dual state and how contemplation yeah. uh, gets you to non-duality. So, uh, so if these texts uh, kind of point us towards uh, you know a non-dual reality, why do we have this uh, this idea about these uh, crazy dualistic uh, Gnostics out there? Well, the crazy dualistic Gnostics were probably, in point of fact, uh, Christian monks of the desert. Um, that the place that we have found these these texts is very much in the same uh, geographical neck of the world where there was this vast explosion in the fourth century uh, of Egyptian desert mysticism. And these people were probably not crazy uh, mystics, at least the original core texts, but were very, very much transformationally minded Christians. Uh, the, the, the rap that these are dualistic texts was, was created in the 19, early 1900s, 1934 basically, when it became very, very fashionable in uh, religious typology to, uh, to construct uh, schematics of different types of things. And so they did an, a schematic of an ideal Gnostic text uh, and created what they would call Gnostic markers. And it's really interesting that there's not a single text that was discovered in Nag Hammadi that contains all of these eight theoretical Gnostic markers. And uh, the Gospel of John, by comparison, has at least three. And the Gospel of Thomas, depending on how you translate a certain word, which is uh, monos or, or, or the, the, the singleness, uh, 
it, it, in my opinion, has none. So this is really the, what happens when the dog child starts chasing its own tail in academic circles. Uh, these typologies were all developed before anybody actually had access to the body of texts that were uh, quote, quote, Gnostic Gospels, because uh, they were developed before, you know, at least 20 or 30 years before the recovery of the actual specimens. So they were based mostly on the polemicists. These were the fourth, second, third, fourth century, uh, what would become the Orthodox Christians uh, who would, you know, vengefully and polemically demonize these texts during the during the time of early Christian identity formation. So it's kind of like asking the, you know, trying to take your your authority for what a what a Gnostic text truly is by reading the the divorce testimony in a bitterly contested <laughs> divorce, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we run with these funny boogeyman stereotypes. There were no such people as Gnostics. And they certainly didn't face the, uh, you know, fit any kind of typology of, of you know, most of the texts are that are... Uh, that span, you know, there is a there is a vast span of approaches and understandings in the in this body of literature, just as there is in the canonical gospels. So they aren't all by one by any standard cut from the same bolt of cloth. And they don't have any kind of doctrinal uniformity. That's another issue that we've borrowed from uh you know, essentially Roman Catholicism that uh that tends to equate church with doctrinal uniformity. You just don't have it. So their takes, like the five blind men trying to look at the elephant, uh, that tend to have in common a wisdom-based, mythological and poetical-based uh, slant to them, uh, a more kind of archetypal cast, and less less interest in, to some degrees in the actual historical narrative of the early Christian institutional formation. Mm -hmm. um, going back to an earlier point that you made, uh, it is interesting just talking from personal experience. When I started getting into these Gnostic texts and when I started you know, doing centering prayer and a little bit of contemplation, when I went back to the scriptures, I found something like the Gospel of Mark that I think a lot of people think of as kind of stripped down and not that interesting suddenly became a very mystical text to me. And, and even now I find it to be a, a very mystical text. And, and I think that's sort of building on what you were saying earlier, that when you uh, start viewing these things through uh, this, uh, this perspective, through, through these eyes, through the heart's eyes, uh, all of a sudden there, there's so much more there. Um, but that, that's Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's, just that's, to comment on that just a minute, because it's such an interesting that you should mention the Gospel of Mark, that one of the most interesting books that's come out in recent years is, uh, is by the, the Buddhist master, uh, the American Buddhist master, Adi Ashanti, uh, on, uh, on Jesus, on the non-dual Jesus. And he bases a lot of his teaching on the, the Gospel of Mark, which he is moved by just like you. And this is a non-dual Buddhist teacher who's simply who's completely blown away by the Gospel of Mark. Wow. So, as ever, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. And basically, we've been hog-tying the Gospel text by holding it down in in rigorously uh, uh, cognitive, exclusive, dualistic academic categories. 
And when we get beyond that, which is what contemplation does, then we're then we're good to go. We see mystery everywhere. Yeah. Why Why do you think that um, we we often think of uh, like if I mention Buddhism or Hinduism in meditation to someone, they're not shocked or they're not surprised. But sometimes when I tell people, oh, you know, I, I'm a Christian, but I also uh, I got to go meditate now. Right? I'm going to this meditation class. I'm going to the centering uh, prayer class, and it, it's like their uh, their monocle falls out. They they don't they <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah, they're, right, they're, they're yeah. shocked. They're surprised, and uh, I'm sure you as as a Christian contemplation uh, leader must get this as well. So why why is it such a shock uh, um, sometimes for for people to to understand this? For in the Christian context, but if I brought it up in a Buddhist or, or a Hindu context, I'd be like, yes, of course. Well, of course, the, I think the real reason is that the is that the contemplative Christian tradition is the best kept secret in Christianity, because uh, very quickly on, even at this great desert desert watershed that we got we we talked about earlier access to the tradition, you know, the whole rich, deep contemplative tradition was really limited to people who were willing to make the commitment to becoming monks. And the practice didn't percolate out into the institutional church. As a matter of fact, there was a lot, there was a lot of resistance to it in the uh, institutional church from right on. I think right around the, the issue of contemplation because it, it tends to open up the eye of the heart that sees, and as it sees, it becomes less dependent uh, on institutional mediation. So the church has always been a little bit resistant to its own tradition. And then, of course, when you had the great Protestant uh, watershed, that almost anything that had its roots in the Catholic Church was immediately demonized as if people had just conveniently forgotten that uh, for 1500 years the tree had only a single trunk. And I remember once asking in a Protestant seminary I was teaching at uh, to, to, to do a course in the rule of St. Benedict and Benedictine practice for daily life and the, the dean drew back in horror and said, St. Benedict? Wasn't he Catholic? <laughs> <laughs> So we still have these terrible bifurcations, and uh, I think on the other side, without without wanting to be just prejudicing at all in one direction, I think that uh, that that the other issue, to the credit of uh, institutional orthodoxy, no matter how cumbersome it was, is that the the mystical tradition always had this funny kind of flirtation uh, with. Uh, with a kind of archetypal, dualistic, perennial philosophy constructs uh, that would kind of get crosswise with the core Christian sense of incarnation. That, that Jesus came to this world uh, not to encourage us to bail out of it and to realize our identity at another level and another uh, planetary sphere, uh, not to dematerialize, but rather to saturate the material with uh, the radiance of divine love. And that's always been the heart of the Christian method, uh, message. And in their attempt to find constructs and uh, conceptual framework for the experiences that they were validly having in contemplative prayer, uh, they often had recourse to materials that didn't uh, have a, a center firmly enough planted 
in the Christian incarnational vision. And I think that wound is starting to heal, but it's only really beginning to heal in the 21st century. And why do you think that is? What's changed? Well, I think that Einstein was a huge, was probably the greatest gift to Christianity when he made, just made it intellectually um, uh, invalid to separate matter and substance. And with that, 2,000 years of substance theology went sliding off the roof like snow in April. Uh, and we, we have to think about a world in which energy is exchanging and which, and which matter and spirit are simply different forms of a continuum of energy. And that is actually really, really good news for Christianity. It's good news for incarnation. Uh, it's good news for all sorts of things, for the dynamic and, ori and world-oriented kind of praxis of Christianity, which is still thoroughly mystical. So it's been only in our own time and over a lot of people's dead bodies <laughs> that we've begun to re-vision re a dynamic, evolutionary, uh, contemplative Christianity. And some of the big players in that have been, um, you know, Thomas Keating and Teilhard de Chardin, and in our own time, uh, Ilya Delio is right out there in front with her interpretations of Teilhard. But we're we're moving into a, an area where we can really see a non-dual incarnational spirituality at the heart of the Jesus wisdom. Hmm. Um, let's, that's, there's a lot to, to unpack there, but <laughs> in the interest of time, let's, uh, let's move on here. So um, you refer to Jesus as a tantric master. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I, I, I didn't really mean to give everybody heart attacks because uh, when when most people hear the word tantra, they 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 think it means having sex and calling it spiritual, and and I certainly don't mean that in that term. But talk, talking once again typologically, there is there's two basic branches in the ancient mystical practices or spiritual practices of the church, uh, and. Slightly simplifying, but not too much. One is called Brahmacharya, and the other is called Tantra. And Brahmacharya is the path, it's, it's often expressed and symbolized in celibacy, but, but not celibacy as a lifestyle. Celibacy as a very uh, uh, precise method of conserving and transforming energy, uh, energy that would have been essentially uh, expended in horizontal reproduction instead gets conserved within the body moved in a in a intentional way up the chakra system and is used as the energy pack to uh, to sustain and open states of profound non-dual enlightenment and so there's a whole teaching of brahmacharya which uh, which is very rigorously taught in its original Hindu variations and, uh, and uh, successively got lost, uh, certainly in, mostly in, in Christian monasticism. But it's a system for conserving and crystallizing and concentrating spiritual energy. Uh, the, the tantric path understood, you know, super generically takes the opposite route that says that if you want to if you want to reach the path of ultimate union, uh, it's not through the concentration of things so they reach an, an, an apex, but through the free squandering or dissipation or radiation 
outpouring of energy. And, and formally, what Jesus taught his canonic practice of, of holding on to nothing, clinging to nothing, um, retaining nothing, concentrating nothing for himself, uh, formally resembles Tantra more than it resembles Brahmacharya. And very early on in, uh, even by the first century, uh, the disciples were referring to him as the single one. But it seems, particularly if you read the Gospel of Thomas, that the singleness means the non-dual one, the enlightened one, mm -hmm. the one who had fused his being into a single core. But it quickly became interpreted to be the celibate one and a whole kind of hierarchy of, of church uh, holiness and spiritual transmission was built on the assumption that Jesus was a celibate, which is simply not sustainable by any credible scholarship. It can't be disproved, but it can't be proved. And the texts that they use and the usual arguments they use to prove it uh, are would be illegitimate from the point of view of rigorous scholarship. Uh, and so, uh, so what I was simply trying to say is that if we really take a look at and try and generically categorize the kind of practice that Jesus taught, and you can say that he taught a non-clinging or a canonic practice, as we call it in Christianity, as his method of attaining non-dual consciousness or complete singleness of the heart. Uh, he, that, that method uh, described and laid out in any kind of school of comparative typology of religion would look a lot more like a tantric method than a brahmacarya method. You mentioned um, you mentioned the word canonic. Can you um, can you go into a little bit more detail about what you mean by that? Well, the proof text on kenosis is the uh, is the word. Um, are you still there? Yes. Yeah. Good. Okay. My little button went red, but uh, we find in Philippians two verse six when Saint Paul is is describing what the mind of Christ is like that. He is encouraging his, the Christian followers to put on. He, he describes Jesus as saying, Though his state was that of God, yet he did not deem equality with God something he should cling to. But rather, he emptied himself, and assuming the form of a slave, he was born in human likeness. So the word in Greek for empty yourself is kenosine. So that's where we get the, the, the Greek word, we get the word canonic. And people ponder and spill a lot of theological ink about what this word means, but if you look at it functionally in the in context of the, of the teaching, it's the opposite of clinging. That he didn't cling to divinity, he didn't exert a sense of entitlement, rather he let go, he, he, uh, he let it be, he made space. And all of this is what's meant in, in kenosis or self-emptying. So a, <clears throat> a kenotic spirituality is simply one that's based on non-clinging, on not asserting in entitlement, uh, on, on preferring a pathway of radiation and fusion uh, and self-giving to one of hoarding and concentrating and storing up. Uh, easier said than done. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so what is the what is the solution for that? What what do what do we do? What should we strive for? 
Um, I don't know. You know, there is in us a, a yearning to strive and there's a yearning to let go. But very often this letting go and not clinging is immediately equated in our culture with lack of motivation, with whatever, uh, you know. And, and it's, it's the egoic system that really concentrates and strives to, uh, to accomplish things. Uh, at a deeper level, there is something that flows so naturally from divine source into us that, that really all we need to do is stay in alignment with that deepest uh, inner beacon. We don't have to concentrate it or make it uh, more intense. It, it's plenty intense as it is. Uh, Thomas Burton once famously said that all we have to do is not put anything in the way that jams the signals or takes its place. So it's really in the greatest teachers in the Christian path, it's understood that what we really do is get out of the way. And then it uh, takes over in its natural, gentle intensity. Hmm. Yes, I, 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 I think I see that. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I recognize that in some of the great mystics in their writings. Yeah. We fall to our destiny like a, like a lead plumb line falls to center. Uh, we just have to stay out of the artificial distortions. Hmm. So you teach uh, contemplative prayer and, and uh, Christian contemplation in, in various sources. Um, what's the what's the what is the benefit a person will get from participating in those practices? Well, there's a, a number of benefits, and. At the, at the start, as in all of these, uh, of the, the great re resurgence, the renaissance of mindfulness practices today out here, it's a wonderful way at the initial level of uh, reducing stress. Thomas Keating, my teacher, likes to say that it's like taking a brief vacation from yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, as you sit in meditation, uh, and particularly as you begin to develop simple methods uh, for controlling that voracious uh, man-eating tiger, which is our mind, uh, you, you calm down. Uh, you see that the issues that were just dogging you and making you crazy aren't so crazy and aren't so dogging. So you, you calm down, you take a deep breath, uh, your, your biorhythms settle down. You're not running so hard on your sympathetic nervous system. You, uh, you relax into your being more. So that has tremendous uh, therapeutic effect. Uh, just below that, uh, you become socialized in a much better way. Uh, I'm, as I'm having this interview with you, I'm out in, in uh, the western suburbs of Los Angeles, and I'm reminded once again by the traffic on the road and the general bustle, just how what incredible levels of urgency and self-importance and freneticness uh, we carry in ourselves when our ego selves are so busily trying to exert themselves. It's just crazy making. And people are all stressed out. They drive through traffic lights. They, you know, mm. <laughs> uh, and so meditation cuts through all that stuff and tends to, to give you a more flexible relationship with life. You can, you can go with the flow a little bit better. Everything is not a direct affront to your ego or a threat to your security. You have a better sense of weighing 
things. So those are some of the general benefits that are attributed across the board to meditation. And you can look at any wellness website and you'll see the same thing. Um, there are properties that help in healing. Um, you know, many people who are struggling to recover from uh, serious illnesses are advised by their doctors to start meditation programs. Again, because when we take the stress off the body, everything heals better. But for me, the real reason for this uh, doesn't have to do with so much with those psychological and physiological effects. It has to do with the fact that, that meditation really begins to rewire the brain and more important, the brain-heart connection, so that we perceive in a different way. It, it's not so much that we see enemies coming to us and are, use our meditation practice to calm ourselves down. Mm -hmm. It's like we don't see enemies coming at us anymore. Rather than seeing the world as oppositional and hard-edged and hostile, we begin to see the subtle lines of compassion and coherence that actually hold the place together. And we begin to find our way along those golden threads that allow us to truly love our neighbor as ourself, not because we're trying to imitate Jesus so that we get rewarded in heaven, but we actually begin to see from that non-dual seeing that our neighbor is ourself. So it, it rewires the brain-heart connection. We see a different reality, and in seeing that different reality, we live that different reality. And that we begin to discover that without even really trying to, we're waking up more and more in the mind of Christ, seeing the world through the Jesus eyes. And those Jesus eyes are radiant eyes. They don't just look at the world detached and objectively. The very look uh, the very looking is an energy stream of love that beams out and changes the very, uh, you know, electronic energy of the world, uh, you know, electromagnetic. Mm. This might be my um, my armchair theology uh, talking, but this is this is kind of what I think of when I hear um, w w the word metanoia, uh, which is often translated yeah. as repentance. This is this is kind of what more what I think of than you know. You've been bad, and you should feel bad. It's more you yeah. should change the way that you're that that you think and the way you experience the world. Exactly, and if you look at the word noia, you may not hear this, but if you break it down into its Greek, uh, noia n o i a was actually gnoia. It comes from the same word as gnosis that we've been talking about, mm -hmm. and it means the the mind or knowing. And meta has two ways of translating. It either means larger, like, you know, uh, or it means to go, go beyond. So it is translated either as go beyond the mind or go into the larger mind, mm. which is a pretty good way of looking at non-dual thinking, and it's a pretty good way of looking at putting on the mind of Christ. So, so when we talk about metanoia, I think, yes, indeed, Contemplation, centering prayer, or any form of meditation is an extraordinary form of metanoia because it catapults you into the larger mind. So I think that I probably speak for a, a lot of people in our audience when I say that I, you know, we, we agree that this is an important thing that we should be doing uh, for our own spiritual well-being and all that, but it's it's hard. <laughs> I'm sure you hear this a lot. Um what, what do you tell people about, you know, f 
feeling blocked and uh, not having the time and, and what, what's the, what, what advice yeah. do you give people for that? Well, first of all, it's easier in groups because you get a synergetic uh, kickback. When you get a lot of people meditating in a group together, the, the energy of intention gets magnified to a point where you can actually feel it as an energy. And you can feel the experience of your own mind flapping around uh, and bouncing and wandering. Uh, but you still know, because it gets reinforced in the synergy of the group, that something's holding you at a deeper level. So very often, you know, what's really, really hard is to sit down all by yourself in your little room that looks like your normal living room mm -hmm. and try and meditate. And you just... Uh, you don't initially get any sensate feedback that 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 lets you think you're doing anything. So you get tend to get preoccupied with, well, am I doing this wrong or it's boring or uh so the way I kind of cut through that is to simply flip things in tip for end and and invite people to think about meditation not as something that you take, but something you give. And that, that so much of the emphasis in the practice, and, and even in the way we were talking about just a few, few minutes ago, is what do you get out of it? What are the benefits? Mm -hmm. And coming right along with that question is, well, you get the benefits if you're doing it right. How do you know if you're doing it right? And are the benefits <laughs> worth the hassle? And, and as long as you put the focus on me and make yourself the evaluator of it and, and consider whether or not it works for you by whether or not you like it, you're still caught in your own squirrel cage. Mm -hmm. But, and, and nobody likes it at first because, you know, like and dislike is squarely, it's the key operating mechanism of the ego. And the ego is going to dislike anything that dethrones it. Uh, so, uh, so if you just move it over and say that meditation is fundamentally making a little space of your own being, your heart, mind, the mystery of you, available generously uh, for purposes of, uh, you know, divine healing, work, and becoming. Uh, that, and that if you simply make that energy available, and it, it's easiest to talk about this if you just use God language, if you say you make that space available to God, for God to do what God wants within that space, uh, it's, it always, in a deep way, uh, increases the quality and quantity of compassion and, and consciousness available on the planet. It's like putting a penny in the bank. It feels like nothing, but if everybody puts a penny in the bank, uh, the penny's bound up. And so, so I take it, you know, and, and that cuts right through performance anxiety uh, and it, it cuts through desperation. You know, when I say, what can I do about a world that seems to be going to hell in a handbasket? And you, there's no way you can stand against forces that are so much larger than you. Well, I sit down and meditate and offer that space on the altar of my own soul uh, for the benefit of all sentient beings. And uh, it's a humble act, but I think it's an effective act. And, and it cuts through so much of the song and dance around meditation and am I doing it right and do I like it and am I getting anywhere. It's just, this is my planetary contribution, period.
I think that will resonate with our audience. I think <laughs> I think there are a lot of people who need to hear that. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether you do it well or not. <laughs> you know, Thomas Keating, my teacher, likes to say the only way you can uh, do Centering Prayer badly is to get up and leave. <laughs> but <laughs> you deeply make yourself available. And what's going on in that prayer, you can't directly touch anyway, particularly at the beginning. Uh because our receiving and perceptive mechanism is grossly disproportionately located in our heads and you can't touch the prayer with your head. When you become more subtly attuned at the, at the sensate level and particularly at what you might call uh, the etheric sensate level, the, the inner life that goes on within the outer energy of the being, you can begin to touch directly that there is a live uh, communion that goes on there. There's a, there's a conversation, there's a dialogue with the infinite that happens. And, and it's refreshing, and it's deeply sustaining. But it doesn't happen at any level that your little ego self can bottle and take home in your thermos jug. Hmm. So, uh, you have um, you speak a lot about uh, and you write a lot about Mary Magdalene, um, and you you view her as a very important figure uh, at, at the heart of Christianity. Can you talk a little bit about her and and the importance of of her in the whole scenario? Yeah, well, I think that uh, aside from the fact that that you know there have been very very early and and consistent and reasonably successful efforts to demonize her. Uh, that that one of the things that becomes clear right away is that right through in the canonical gospels, and you don't even need to to go to the Gnostic gospels or the gospel of Mary Magdalene, but right there in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find that she was the witness to the whole thing, the witness to the crucifixion. She was there, all four Gospels attest she was there. The witness to the resurrection, all four Gospels attest she was there. The burial, uh, three of the four attest she was there. She was present for the whole thing. So the, the kind of theology that's routinely passed down, and I'm sure you got it in seminary if you're studying in Catholicism, uh, is that Jesus died alone and abandoned. Not so. Mm. Uh, his, his male disciples ran away. Uh, his female disciples did not run away, and she particularly did not run away. So that leads you to the next question. Why didn't she run away? And, well, you can say that either that she was, uh, you know, she was hysterical and had an absolutely, uh, you know, deep and desperate and histrionic infatuation with Jesus, or that she understood something not only an equality in the relationship with him, but she understood something about the, 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 the deeper meaning, the necessity, and the transformative energy that was packed into what Jesus had to do on the planet. So I think that latter estimate is what I come up with. There's just too much to say. She, she understood what was going on in a way that is far more intense, uh, subtle, intimate, but comprehensive than any of the other disciples. She got it from the inside. 
and she points like a straight arrow to Christianity as a religion of the transformation of love, probably even the transformation of eros, and to love at the heart of the gospel of resurrection. Uh, where she's there, we find in theology throughout the ages, it, it softens and it begins to talk about things like forgiveness. Uh, where she's missing, it hardens into judgment and atonement theology and God-demanding victims. Uh, I think also, and this is more speculative, but I think that, that she and Jesus also clearly modeled a relationship of spiritual uh, mutual partnership, intimate partnership, and by intimate I don't necessarily mean sexual, I don't necessarily not meaning, but I would want everybody to hear <laughs> that, that intimate does not necessarily mean they went to bed together. Uh, but they did give and take with that kind of deep inner knowing of hearts that's at the essence of all relations, all true love relationships. And thus, I think they serve as a real model and clarion call uh, to Christians in particular who have always said, well, you know, the monastic and the celibate species is the higher form of Christianity and us lay people just put up and have children, I think that they model a, a significant romantic uh, relational path based on mutuality and the transformation of Eros. And in that way, they bring a hugely wider circle of, of, of practitioners into the very heart of the, the Christian practice. And, and I think to say that, doesn't require you to take any liberties with the scriptures. Uh, once again, I'm not talking about the way it's often, you know, demonized and sensationalized. I'm not talking about, well, all along Mary Magdalene was Jesus's mistress. Uh, I'm not saying that was untrue. I'm not saying it was true. But I'm saying that the lineaments of a deep and transformative loving partnership are there. And even the, even the most assiduous of, of, of scrubbing and demonizing and editing, couldn't it edit it out of the gospel story? So we might as well face it and reclaim it because it's desperately needed to, uh, to help in the reclamation of Christianity from the terrible kind of uh, arid places that it's found itself beached nowadays. Uh, Reverend Borshaw, we're, uh, we're starting to run low on time, so I'm going to ask a, a question I should have asked at the very beginning, so it's in the wrong part of the show. But uh, I, how did you get onto this, this path? How, how did you find Christian contemplation? You know, how and why did you start? Well, in a deep way, I, there was never a time I didn't know, because I had the good luck of being born in Philadelphia, which is a part of the world where there's uh, a deep presence of Quakerism, and... Uh, Quakerism, particularly as it was practiced in that part of the world, uh, was based on silent meetings for worship. And so very early on, since I went to Quakers to be educated, uh, I, got ex I got exposed to and very, very deeply uh, engaged in the practice of sitting in silence. It was never alien to me. We, I don't know how we did it, but once a week, uh, 60 children ages 5 to 12 trooped into an old colonial meeting house and sat in silence uh, unless the word of God prompted someone to speak. So it was always there. 
and it was always in the backdrop in my in my spiritual practice and so i i I took the course of, of seminary and uh, and in seminary uh, uh, in the Episcopal Church because uh, it, it allowed for the ordination of women. It allowed me to be exposed to uh, the Christian mystical tradition, but I always had kept that kind of yearning for the uh, the mystical silence that I, I had first encountered as a child. So. I found my way to Benedictine monasteries where I found silence being practiced, uh, largely through some of the work I'd done in scholarship on the Desert Fathers and others. And so I said, oh, there's monasteries and they're doing silence. This is great. And then when, when at one of those monasteries, there emerged a teacher, Thomas Keating, who began to take the practices of silence that were had a deep and living history in the monasteries and package them in such a way that people in the world could be reconnected to the authentic Christian contemplative path. I said, wow, this is great. I can, I can do this work. And, and it was very, very useful to me in a way that I didn't even expect at first. That, that because uh, it certainly gave me something I could teach. As I got in there and began to teach people how to meditate, uh, I had a little, I had a little uh, shtick I could do. I could go out now and work, and and my teaching career in the church uh, moved from being kind of academic teaching to spiritual teaching by teaching centering prayer. But along the way, I also began to discover that people who had been exposed to centering prayer and had worked in that practice for a year or so uh, were much more teachable, and that's how I discovered the wisdom teaching. When I first presented some of these texts, like the Gospel of Thomas, just wearing my hat as a Christian professor, people would immediately start nattering it with their brains. But when, they, when we could approach it by beginning with centering prayer and meditating and then inviting people into that space that's known in contemplative seers as Lexio Divina, a deep and kind of prayerful and mystical uh, perception of the texts, you got a whole different quality of response. And that's where I began to say, oh, wow, centering prayer is the key to opening the wisdom tradition, not just at a theoretical level, but at a deeply practical and transformational level. So, uh, you know, that's, that's the story of the last 30 years fast-forwarded. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, now, before we uh, before we close things out here, where can people find more about your work and, and your books and, and what you're up to these days? Well, there's a bunch of websites out there. The the old, uh, the original, and the and the distinguished flagship of my of my uh, my work is the Contemplative Society which is this wonderful little outfit we helped to form in British Columbia about 20 years ago. And the website is simply contemplative.org. It's amazing that back in 1997 when we formed it, we were able to get that <laughs> URL, no more. Uh, but uh, I've got another site which has been growing now um, called contemplativewisdom.com, all one word, uh, that... Uh, that really focuses, it's, it's still under development, but it, when it's fully developed, it, it, it aims to be a real wisdom resource and archive that will have uh, eventually, you know, the complete collection of, 
of courses, books, uh, everything available. You can get a wonderful CD series and general connections to YouTubes and videos on the Contemplative Society site as well. So those would be the major resources. Uh, the other thing I just say as a word for my sponsor is that if there are folks out there that are listening that really like this kind of stuff and want to jump into deeper to a program of study based in Christian contemplation but leading to different vision, uh, I'm one of the core faculty in Richard Rohr's wonderful Living School. Mm -hmm. And if you Google the Living School, you'll see it's a two-year program where people do um, mostly online but also, but also limited on-site education where you're immersed in these texts and the contemplative practices that unlock them. Not just Gnostic texts, but the great Christian mystical tradition, Teilhard de Chardin, some Ken Wilber, some uh, Ilya Delio, the whole nine yards of a, of a radically different reclamation of a wisdom Christianity. So I'm really excited about that work and proud about that work, and so it's another place to look for me. All right. Well, that all sounds fantastic. Uh, Jonathan, is there anything else you'd like to ask before we sign off? Uh, so much more, but I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think we have the time. So, uh, but, but it has been wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Reverend Borsho. Yes, thank you so much for uh, spending the time with us tonight. Okay, well, thank you, and good luck on the airing. <laughs> all right. So for everybody listening along at home, we'll see you next week. This has been a production of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License, and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c.